Foresight is not an attempt to predict the future, but it is an attempt to minimize surprise by studying the future, studying what is possible, what all the various scenarios for change are, and not necessarily saying, oh, this is what's going to happen, but saying, what would you do if this happened? And allow us to create a kind of deck of responses uh, so that when the inevitable surprise happens, we have some kind of response in hand. So it's essentially the opposite of fortune-telling. Hello, I'm Denise Withers, and you're listening to Forward, an interview series where today's leaders reveal how they use stories to make change and shape the future. If you need a new way to move forward towards your goals, then stay tuned, because I have just the story for you. Leaders and organizations live and die by their ability to plan for and navigate the future. And while tools such as data and analytics have a key role to play, the most powerful way to explore and shape the future is through the lens of story. Nobody knows that better than award-winning science fiction writer and futurist Carl Schrader. Over the last 40 years, Carl's helped organizations from the Canadian military to Intel use tools like strategic foresight, prototyping, and design fiction to anticipate and prepare for the unknown. He has incredible insights to share about the power and potential of stories to help us tackle some of today's biggest challenges. And I can't wait to hear what he has to say. So welcome, Carl. I'm so happy to be here, Denise. Thank you so much for inviting me. I think we're going to have a great conversation. You know, you're an acclaimed science fiction author and a futurist. And you have so much cool stuff going on. I'm really excited to hear more about your foresight work and what you're doing with stories to help organizations really shape the future. So I'm wondering maybe the best place to start is, can you tell me about your latest work and your latest project, Human Futures? So what is that and what kind of work are you doing there? Human Futures is uh, Human Futures Studio and the Human Futures Institute, I should say, are a consultancy and a research group set up by Paul Hartley and others to do foresight work and to uh, study the future in a commercial and non-commercial capacity. So there's the consulting side and then there's the pure research side. And I do a bit of work in, in both areas. So I know a lot of people listening aren't going to have a clue what foresight is. So can you can you tell us a little bit about about what that is? Sure. Foresight is basically uh, what you have to do when you can't predict the future. We'd all like to be able to predict the future, but in, in the absence of, of of that ability, we still are faced with the future, and as a result, we have to make decisions. We have to plan. We have to sometimes commit ourselves and our companies and even our countries to courses of action without full knowledge of what their uh, results are going to be. Foresight is not an attempt to predict the future, but it is an attempt to minimize surprise and in a way to inoculate you against surprise by studying the future, studying what is possible what could happen, what all the various scenarios for change are, and not necessarily saying, oh, this is what's going to happen, but saying, what would you do if this happened or if this happened? And, you know, a typical foresight engagement will study many different possible future situations and allow us to create a kind of deck of responses 
uh, so that when the inevitable surprise happens, we have some kind of response in the head. So it's, yeah, essentially the opposite of fortune telling. Yeah, very cool. So do you have an example that you can give us of a foresight project that you worked on? Uh, I've done many over the years, and I, I started out uh, working with Jack Smith at the National Science Castle in Ottawa back in the early aughts. And we studied things like the future of you know, economics or the economy in Ontario, climate change, possible international shocks that might come in the future. Pandemics, you know, were a scenario that, that came up more than once. I, I'm most well known for work that I did for the Canadian military about 15 years ago, where we studied the potential development of military and peacekeeping technologies looking forward about 30 years. Wow, that's really fascinating. So I know people are, are thinking, okay, how does story fit into this? So it's one thing to kind of look ahead and we look at data and things like that. Where does the story piece fit into this work? Well, storytelling is possibly the most powerful communication tool that humanity's ever developed. There's a, a great book by Brian Boyd called On the Origin of Stories, where he, he goes into why humanity developed this faculty. And it really is the only way that you can communicate a complex, diverse, multi faceted situation, I, I, I guess you would call it. Take tornadoes, for instance. You can describe tornadoes mathematically as a class, but to describe any given tornado, you can only do it by talking about its context and its history. And context and history together are what we call the history of that particular tornado. And when we look forward as well, we find Situations where, for my military work, for instance, I would have a situation where simultaneously I was trying to figure out how mass adoption of smartphones, smart crowds, artificial intelligence, drones, uh, and, and a whole bunch of other technologies, how they would all simultaneously affect one another on the battlefield. And the only way that you can communicate something of that complexity or even think it through is by setting it in motion as a story. And then you say, oh, well, this wouldn't happen because clearly, you know, the, the characters wouldn't do this, or uh, obviously you can't do this while the drone is in the air and so on and so forth. By telling a story, you put in motion this vast sort of undercurrent of cognitive abilities that we all have for determining what's plausible, what's likely, what would play against what else. And there's nothing quite like narrative for doing that. You know, everything you're saying resonates with me. So I, I talk about that. That set of abilities, I talk about it as narrative intelligence, mm -hmm. right? This idea that we actually do more than communicate. As you just described, we use stories to imagine and test out the future. We use stories to research and find new information. We do all of these amazing things with stories, and we do it most of the time subconsciously. There's a, a, another good book by Alicia Herrero called Dynamics in Action, where she gives a cognitive science sort of perspective on why narrative is, is uh, as powerful as it is. And uh, I was prepared to be convinced because I'm a writer and therefore would like to feel that I'm at the center of the universe anyway. But th th these two books, uh, Boyd's and Arrows, uh, had an immense um, impact on me when I started to realize just how far beyond entertainment the stuff that I was doing 
could go. Because I started out as an entertainer, as a science fiction writer, and I thought of myself as an entertainer for many years. I got into foresight by being dragged into foresight conferences as the automatically wackiest person in the room. So you would have a, a, a room full of government bureaucrats who were being asked to think outside the box. And by bringing me in, I would give them, by my very presence, a little bit of permission to go outside their own boundaries. But I learned as I was doing this kind of thing that in the end, what we were talking about and what we were discovering when we did foresight work couldn't really be communicated without somebody telling a story. So how are you weaving all of that together now? So you've got your science fiction writing. You've got the foresight work where you're trying to figure out how the future is going to work and then the stories that need to communicate that. So how does that all get pulled together now? What does that look like? I keep my fiction writing and my foresight work uh, apart in my own mind, but I know they influence one another because I'm always doing research for one or the other. I, I think that the general method, at least on the foresight side, comes all the way back to my first projects with the Canadian Army. So I, I was called... Uh, upon to write a, a book called Crisis in Zephra uh, around uh, 2004 by the Directorate of Land Strategic Concepts of the Canadian Army. And going back and forth with them, they had some scenarios about the, the future that they had developed, and they wanted to communicate the findings in, in such a way that uh, anybody could grasp them quickly. They wanted a learning tool basically, for officer training. So narration was sort of always on the table. But what we landed on was a, a hybrid model, which was very interesting, where I wrote a four-chapter short novel. But in that novel, we put in footnotes with links to ideas that were being used in the text at that moment. And at the end of each chapter, there was actually a discussion section with questions, commentary, and further reading for each chapter. So this allowed us to have our cake and eat it. We had the story, which you could just read right through. But then you could stop at any point and sort of lift yourself out of it and look for connections and further reading it and so on. And so what kind of response did that get from people? Because I'm guessing they probably had never had a learning experience like that before. Well, we, we had an immensely positive response. And the, the book seems to have gone all through NATO. I, I, I'm told that the U.S. Marine Corps are particular fans. It, it, it was a very interesting experience. And um, I never worked with the military before. Since then, I, I've done similar projects for the U.S. Air Force and NATO and other groups. But that's, again, never been my primary work. I, I usually work for government or for uh, the corporate sector. But the approach was so powerful, and we developed it so so well in, in, in those first engagements that I have a kind of toolkit now that I can pull a variety of different approaches out of. And so you're using this with government and, and corporate clients. Can you give us another example of how somebody might use this to really to deal with, as you said, the uncertainty that everybody's facing. Sure. Well, well, strategic foresight is a component of strategic planning. And I, I have worked for companies such as Intel. Intel had their own in-house futurist for many years, Brian David Johnson, who wrote a, a wonderful book called Science Fiction Prototyping that I would recommend to anyone who's interested in this overlap of science fiction and, and, and foresight. 
And what I learned working with Intel was that some corporations and, you know, energy companies are are the same, have investment horizons that are longer than their comprehension horizon of the future. So to explain that, Intel, if they are going to develop a a, a new major chip, have to start about eight or nine years um, ahead of time, or at least they used to, but they can only predict the future confidently a couple of years out. And even then they're looking at market trends and things like that, that could blow up in their faces at any minute. And yet they have to, to spend sometimes upwards of billions of dollars to build new chips and again, do this so many years in advance that they cannot afford to get it wrong. And the problem with the future is that you absolutely, in this sort of circumstance, absolutely must be able to predict the future, and you absolutely cannot predict the future. Foresight is what you get when you put those two impossibilities head to head. You get the creation of a set of possible futures for Intel, where you say, well, let's talk about a future where everybody's using their smartphone and they have virtual keyboards that are projections out of the phone and you can just type on the tabletop and nobody uses desktop computers anymore. Okay, so that's one future. What does that future look like? What's the implication for us? And and, and then you say, well, okay, and and then what if tablets are the thing? Or what if we start communicating with computers entirely by voice? So Siri and that kind of thing. What augmented reality? How do each of these, you know, influence what we could do? And then from there, start what we call wind tunneling of these possible futures. To wind tunnel is to take a a, a set of possibilities that you've uh, come up with and to run them through some possible future scenario. And that's when things start to turn into stories, typically. Usually, storytelling is employed at the end of this whole process. After you've had a conference, after you've worked up scenarios and, and possible strategic plans, storytelling traditionally has been used to communicate what you've found to shareholders, uh, board members, the general public. But what we've been learning over the past decade or so is that you can deploy storytelling at a lot of the previous stages as well, because it's really a thinking tool on its own. Yeah, you, you just, that last bit really hit home with me. It really is a thinking tool on its own. I know some of the work I do, I use tools like role play and improv trying to shape out a story to see how how a new strategy might work or how a new program might work. So when you're doing wind tunneling, can you unpack that a little bit more for us? How do you use stories to think through whether a scenario might work in this in this technique? At it, its most basic, the wind tunneling is kind of narrative free because you could say, well, let's say we have this new product line and let's say that the, the, the customer segment that we're aiming suddenly pivots and goes in this direction next year. So what do we do kind of thing? That's not by itself the sort of uh, situation in which storytelling is, is necessary. But as soon as you move more than a couple of years into the future and as soon as you are talking about any technology or social change that might have a lot of different influences on it, then you have to start picturing people in situations and walk them through those situations. 
And this is where you start creating vignettes. Uh, a vignette is typically, let's imagine a, a postal worker uh, uh, 10 years from now. His, his name is Eve. He lives in Montreal and uh, he's getting up to go to work for his average day with his drone delivery system, right? So what does that day look like for Eve, right? So now when you're doing that kind of work, you're balancing on the cusp of, of storytelling. And uh, one of the things that I've done over the last 10 years or so is try and develop a set of uh, tools that can be used by people who aren't storytellers by trade to craft vignettes, scenarios, and even, even you know, short stories building up from uh, a set of findings or a, a product plan, that kind of thing, to something that could be a highly communicative story. That's really, really fascinating. And, and, and so how do you do this work with clients? I imagine it's probably different with every engagement, but it sounds like you're creating a lot of story elements that you can play with, you can mix and match with, you can run with, you can kind of develop them in depth. And so what does that process of doing this work with clients look like? Do you kind of go off and do it on your own? Do you run workshops with them? How does that, how does that all happen? Well, it is different with every client. And with foresight, we have a concept which is foresight maturity in an organization. And that's basically just how sophisticated is this organization of doing this kind of work to begin with. If it's not very mature, what they'll do is they'll come to you and say, we want you to predict the future. Right. And, and you patiently explain that you cannot do that, but there are things that you can do. Uh, if they're very sophisticated, they might come to you and say, you know, we, we want you to run, let's see, some kind of differential on the analysis on uh, a, a set of scenarios that we built up a couple of years ago and add in these factors and so on and so forth. In between that is this large space of play where a client may say something like, we would like to have some scenarios, or they will say, we want you to write a story. And uh, typically what you want to do is you want to base what you're working on, on some kind of empirical exploration of what's actually happening in the world, what the actual trends are. As I said, foresight's typically a part of strategic planning, and therefore it has a particular point at which it happens. In strategic planning, it usually happens about halfway through the whole process after a lot of research has already been done and before a plan is actually worked up. So again, with a client that has a lot of foresight maturity, they will know where to slot you in and they will know what to ask of you. But one that has little foresight maturity may think that you will start out by picturing the future and then go find whatever reinforces that future, as a lot of people do. But it it doesn't really work very well. It doesn't at all. And what you're saying really resonates with me. In my experience with a lot of clients is they do the research and then they go straight to the solution. There isn't that time in the middle to say, what are the possibilities here? And so how, how do you get them to understand the value of doing that work? Or what kinds of things are they saying to you about why they want to do the work? You know, what's the benefit in doing that work for them? How's it paying off? Well, a great way to approach the client on that kind of thing is to reframe the foresight work as a design. And in design, typically you start out with a set of requirements, but there's a phase of what's often called divergence, where you come up with possible designs, possible solutions, and everyone involved in the project has license to explore 
wherever they want to. And uh, this is the, the sort of area of design fiction, which is a very closely related concept, as well as prototyping. Again, very, very closely related idea. And when you say to the client, well, we've studied the trends and now what we're going to do is prototype and construct design fictions, then you generally will have more license to do that exploratory work. And they'll be a lot more comfortable if they understand that this is a, a, a design activity that they're engaged in, rather than throwing the bones to try and predict. It, it, it's really often getting over the, the, the hump of having a preconception of what is involved in doing foresight and having a pre preconception about how the future is going to go. When the client realizes suddenly that they have a default vision of the future that they ha have never even examined, it can often be liberating. I I've been to foresight conferences where during the break, we had people hyperventilating in the bathrooms. They were so blown away by having their default future dismantled in front of them, basically. Tell me more about that, because I, I've had the exact same experience and not, not hyperventilating. It wasn't that bad. But I, I did a project where we were, I'm out in BC, and at one point I worked with a client and we talked about, okay, what's the scenario going to be when the earthquake hits? It's not if. It's when the earthquake hits and their jaws just drop. They're like, huh, what? <laughs> so, you know, this idea that a lot of people, I'm not going to say everybody, but a lot of people, when they think about the future, it looks pretty much the same as it does today. So what's the role of strategic foresight in kind of shifting them away from that vision and getting them to open up their minds? Well, I'll give you a good example. If, if I write a story about the last farmer, 25 years from now, who's being forced by economic forces to go from farming to land management uh, and rewilding because agriculture has been banned, you know, people will go, what? And then as you lay out the logic, they will start to go, oh, 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 because, you know, it's perfectly possible with precision fermentation and uh, vertical farming and the replacement of meat with, well, uh, vat-grown equivalents, things like that, that you could, in fact, have a future scenario where, if not banned, agriculture would become a, a, a radically reduced part of our economy and society. And then once someone is at that point, then they start seeing connections and say, oh, well, I guess that'd be a smaller carbon footprint. And, and oh, I guess if you're rewilding the land, I guess a lot of animals would come back and the ecological crises that we're in might start to abate. And, and after a little while, they're going, oh, okay, so when do you think this might happen? <laughs> And how, how would we plan for it? But there is that initial shock of the new that you have to walk people up to and get them past. And it, it will always have a moment of disbelief, which is fine, because as a science fiction writer, I, I'm ready for that. <laughs> and, and so that leads me really nicely into the next thing that I, I wanted to ask you about. Is how do we get people to change their behavior? And my belief is you can't get anybody to change until you give them a better future story than the one that they're currently telling themselves. How deliberate is that idea in the work that you're doing with your clients? Do they get that? Is that deliberately what they're trying to do? Well, sometimes and sometimes not. Again, 
Yeah, every client's different. And part of the problem is that you have to make an assessment going in of, again, the maturity level and the ability of an organization to change. Often they think it's about designing a new product, but really it's about changing the culture. <laughs> Always. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But what you don't do is you do not create a report, hand it to them and say, sayonara, job done. And uh, somebody might read it once and then it goes in a drawer or something. The most effective engagement is ongoing, where you're touching base on a regular basis and giving measures of comparison, checkpoints, so that they can say, oh, well, six months ago, we thought this way and we felt this way, but we wrote that stuff down. And now we get to review it again and we're going, oh, well, actually, we don't think that way anymore. And let's write down what we think now. And suddenly we realize, well, maybe six months from now, we won't think the way we're thinking now either. So there's a lot of different ways to, to approach it. And again, narratives is one of the most powerful because by putting a person in a situation, you allow the client to imaginatively walk through a future that otherwise they would not be able to imagine. So if you put a bunch of changes, new technologies, new social changes, new laws, whatever, into a document and say, you know, 10 years from now, we will have this, that, and the other, people will just sort of go, okay, and, and walk away. There's no resonance. There's no ability to, to, to backcast, as we call it, to look back from that future to now and see what the changes between now and then are going to be. But if you create a narrative, a person that people can identify with, drop them into that world. What may happen is that after they've read your story and after they've gone away, it might stick with them and they might go back and spend some daydreaming time in that world and come to insights that you didn't put in there, but are logically sort of logical results of that future if you were to think it through. And they may come up with creative new solutions on their own. So. Stories, for me, are the source of innovation. They're the source of all our knowledge, our creativity, and our innovation. Yeah. Yeah. No, no I, I, I really do think so. I started as a storyteller. I started as a, a high school dropout, determinedly writing and assuming that I would uh, be a millionaire by the time I was 23 and, you know, world famous and all this sort of thing. And, I, you know, I've had some success, but eventually we evolved into more of a designer in a lot of ways, uh, where I deliberately deploy uh, my stories as designs or design fictions to try and spark particular response in people, not just to entertain anymore, because I know I can entertain, but to cause, uh, if I can, that the sort of thoughtful going away and daydreaming and placing oneself into a future where new insights can be created. And, you know, I'm not responsible for those insights. I have to sort of point the finger in a particular direction and people use their own imagination and, and, and intellect to construct things. But that's the wonder of stories is that anybody can do that. And uh, we should all be doing it much, much more. Yeah. I'm really curious because it sounds like a, a lot of the work that you've been doing has been in the business environment with or with public sector as well, I guess. Looking at, you know, some of the big social environmental challenges we have these days, what's the potential to use the kind of work that you're doing to tackle some of those challenges? I, I think it's immense. In fact, I think it's critical. There's a default future for our whole society. 
there is a set of possibilities for the next 20, 30, 40 years that we all tacitly share. And some of them are being broken down right now. Uh, You won't be able to buy a a, a gas-powered car in 10 years. And people are starting to realize this. But there's a lot of other possible changes. And I wrapped a lot of that together in a very deliberate way in my last novel, Stealing Worlds, in which I, I deliberately invented a new concept to change the conversation about global warming ecosystems, you know, the, the decay of the natural world. I created what I called a, a, a deodat, which is an artificial intelligence that, unlike the usual killer robot, identifies itself with and as some natural system, such as a forest or a river. And uh, in fact, in the real world, natural systems are starting to be granted legal personhood. The, the Wanganui River in, in New Zealand is a legal person, for instance, as is the Magpie River here in Ontario. And when you combine a self-owned legal river with an artificial intelligence that thinks it's that river, you get a new kind of a social and economic actor that can become an enemy or, or potentially a partner to humanity in re-greening the planet. And that was the grand ambition of that book. But it, it, I've given talks about how that is just an example of the kind of out-of-the-box transformative thinking that we need. These deodans, these AIs that I discovered, well, maybe they'll never exist, although I'm working actually to to build them right now. But even if they don't exist, what they do is they create a new character in our collective drama who has new capabilities and can divert the course of the story. So it is absolutely vital, I think, that we carefully and deliberately construct more such characters and more such uh, potential narratives. Not necessarily because we're optimistic about the future, or, or even that we think the future can necessarily be changed, but because if we don't do this, then we do not have extra cards to play. We're stuck with what we have, and we might not be stuck with what we currently think we have. So, yeah, it's very important. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you. You know, I remember reading... I think it might have been for Stephen King's uh, book on writing, and he talked about where he gets his inspiration from, and and it's those two magic little words, what if, and we all have the power to to ask that and to let our minds wander and and see where that takes us. Absolutely, yeah. You know, as Brian Boyd points out, storytelling is a native human faculty. It's like talking; everybody can do it in one way or another, and everyone has that native capacity for constructing narrative. We just differ in the degree of exposure we've had to seeing it being done and opportunities to do it. I was lucky because uh, when I was growing up, there was two books in our bookshelf. It was Schrader, my last name on the spine, because my mother had published a couple of uh, novels just before I was born. So for me, I was able to say, well, of course, this is somebody anybody's mom could do, so clearly I could do it too. We don't all have that opportunity, but we all have the capacity. And it's just a matter of finding those muscles and, and exercising them. 
I love that. Thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time today to share your work and your expertise with us. And I'm definitely going to look forward to following the work that you're doing and continuing to learn from you. So thanks again, Carl. Thanks so much for having me, Denise. You've been listening to Forward, a podcast about how leaders use stories to shape the future. If you'd like to know more about how story design can help you develop and sell your big idea, get in touch at deniswithers.com. <laughs>